everyone. Welcome to another episode of CJ and the Duke. As always, I am your co-host, Robert the Duke Fedoric. And I am Corey, CJ Wesley. Okay, today we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Stephen Jefferson from ServiceNow. He's a senior advisory solutions consultant. And if you check out his LinkedIn profile, which will be in the description below, you will see that he has got all the acronyms of all the new hotness features in ServiceNow. And so we're really looking forward to diving deep on this one. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Good to have you here. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this. I said in LinkedIn, I'll say it again. It's an honor to be asked. We're happy to be here. So I guess... Why don't we start, because you've been in this space for six years, we have some really interesting experience before that. So how did you get into the ServiceNow space to begin? Oh, so I had a, I had a really good boss, Dan Malone, and he and I worked together at Borland years ago. And then um, when I left Borland and he left Borden, he ended up at uh, ServiceNow. And uh, he said, and I quote, you got to check this shit out. Nice. <laughs> nice. So I said, all right, I'll take a look. And that was the uh, end of twenty. Well, actually about mid-2015. Since then, it's just been put on your five-point harness and hold on to the rocket ship. You, you know, Steve, I feel like everyone has kind of like one of these stories when it comes to service. Now, I remember mine. We were at an ITSM conference in King's Crossing in, in uh, London, Earl's Crossing, one of, the, one of the crossings up there. And, you know, one of us um, wandered into the ServiceNow booth. And the next thing you know, it was like the scene in uh, in the first Matrix when Neo and Morpheus are start, start the Kung Fu scene in the simulation and, and everyone's running to, oh my God, no, Morpheus is fighting Neo, right? Like it was that <laughs> yeah. it was that level of enthusiasm. We're all like frantically texting each other, get over to the ServiceNow booth. You got to see this shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, mine wasn't nearly as fun as that. Every day that ends in Y was a day where we were trying to figure out how to trick OVSD into doing what we needed it to do. And it was in the middle of our team meeting and our boss said, hey, why don't we just Google what's better than HP OVSD? And it was the really early days of ServiceNow and their whole marketing campaign was basically guerrilla marketing against HP. <laughs> just like all like all memes before anybody was calling anything memes. And it was so fun. It was so fun. And it was like the same day we got the demo and we set a purchasing record after that for uh, so, so how fast. So to talk about that, that marketing side, I had never heard of them until my boss mentioned it to me. Mm -hmm. And so, and as it turns out, when I joined the company, I was like, oh, I have used this before. I just didn't know I was. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. <laughs> That's hilarious. So the reason why I invited you to the show is because in your ServiceNow journey, you have worked with a lot of the, I don't want to call them edge cases because that kind of takes away from what they are, but the deeper, more exotic stuff, AI and machine learning and NLU and gosh, I didn't know what NLQ is. What is that? <laughs> Natural language query. Oh, okay. Got you. Yeah. Which is awesome, by the way. I did a video on that for the uh, When in Rome series, I think. Yeah, it's surprisingly um, surprisingly easy to do once you've done a little bit of the foundation. So yeah, that's one of those little bits of wisdom. I say, listen, it's kind of like uh, interactive dashboard, you know, on the the, the list. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of like just add it in. It won't take you long and it'll save you a bunch of time later. So I'm a big fan of it. So do you have like an order of, of operations in terms of how you should build upon some of these new technologies and service now? And that's probably totally a, a sideways question, but it just kind of popped in my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's that's where I live. The the thing that's I consider is is like you've got multiple dimensions you need to approach stuff. It's kind of like firing on all cylinders, but you can start with like, how do I digitize this first? Or how do I automate some of this? 
And those two things to me are independent, but when you put them together, it's really handy. You know, you go from like, hey, I'm receiving this shipping thing and, you know, the box is damaged and how does that affect our purchasing group and everything later? If it goes from like clipboards and phone calls to like, hey, I just put it in, then that's your first digitization. And then you get to automation where it's like, hey, when I receive stuff that looks like this, who needs to know about it? Where do we record this? And what do we do about it? So to me, if you start breaking down stuff into to that, you need to look at the experience. And so that's the human-centered design and UX and all of that. And I think that that's the best place to start because otherwise you're just looking at a bag of tools and, and functionality. So I don't know if that's really what your question was, but to kind of back up, it's like, where do you start? Well, do you have a process? <laughs> or do you just need like a bucket to hold a bunch of tasks and, and information? So there's maturity in that, that sort of process or digitization side. And then there's maturity on the automation side is, can I automate it? Can I connect to it? Can I integrate with it? You know, what can I do with that? Because you can't get to any of the cool advanced features. Like, you know, we're just talking about NLQ. You can't get to that unless it has access to the data and uh, a little bit of stuff to learn from some history. So I say, start out simple. And if you fail small and fail quickly, great. I definitely love to fail small and fail quickly. You know, a lot of what you just said kind of reminds me of an episode we did previously around Catalyst. What do you think about that, Duke? Yeah, I think when we talk about different maturity models as well, where the first thing you solve for is visibility, right? Then you can solve for automation. Then you can solve for integration and governance and da-da-da-da-da. But step one is, can we see these things? Do we know how many of them are out there? Yeah. Right. I think that's always the best place to start. And then our Catalyst episode we'll link to below where we talk about how things start because we do have a definitive bias that somebody goes to the catalog or somebody calls a service desk or what have you. And there's just so many different new ways now. Yeah. You know, it can start from an integration. It can start from uh, a chatbot. It can start from natural language understanding, hopefully. And, and there's even a ServiceNow maturity to the side of that. I ran across a customer who came to me and was like, hey, I wrote this security incident thing a long time ago, but we need to you know, do a new one of it. And I was like, all right, why aren't you talking to SecOps? And they're like, well, because they said it's not theirs. And that's when I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what, what's a security incident to you? And he's like, well, when an employee gets kidnapped. And I was like, what? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they started out with a catalog item for that. And, <laughs> wow. And so yeah, now they just, got kidnapped. <laughs> like, man, like I, I've worked at a place, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> but that one, like, I, whew, wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> the most interesting one I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, it, it caught my attention. <laughs> so when we think about that maturity, it's like, all right, well, she said, I, I, I need to start. And what can I do? Oh, I can make a catalog item for that and work fine for them for years. And then they came along and was like, how can we make this better? And I was like, wow, thank you for asking that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I happen to know that the company had the mobile app. Oh, okay. Like, okay. So how does someone report this? And they went through a few situations and, you know, they work with like third party security forces and uh, what do they call them? Uh, like each country has like a consulate and paper and everything that needs to be signed so that you can do exfiltration and all of that. And I was like, boy, this is getting pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, we can get their GPS location. And he was like, well, that would be awesome. I, I, I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like this is, I, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, do go on, right? Like, so (laughs) this is one of those situations. I can't believe a solution to this problem actually exists, right? And wow, it's just incredible. What I find incredible is that there's enough of it to put workflow and visibility behind. Yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) The world just got a little bit darker for me, but that's okay. Well, this is a bright light, though, because it was for them to help their employee get back to their family. Mm-hmm. So as uh, this person who works in the security group, it was like, I need to do this and I need to do this and I need to do this. And then HR comes along as like, well, we need to offer the, the family like counseling. Maybe we need to get them a trip to meet the family member or whatever. And so then it just right. branched from there. But where did he start? He started at digitization, right? Yeah. It's, it's about recognizing the beginning of that, of that process. Like we have this process. You know, we like to digitize it, make it more efficient. And then the next thing you know, you've got ServiceNow orchestrating what happens if one of your employees get, get, gets kidnapped. Like Robert said, a bit dark, but great. <laughs> Stuff's so, messy out there. It definitely is. One of the things listed on your LinkedIn profile is your extensive experience with low code, no code. So tell me, in order to successfully implement something like a, no, a successful low code and no code program internally, like, what do you need to do first? What do you get right first in order to make that happen? Because it always seems like from my direct experience and also indirect experience is that, you know, it's something that companies are all often looking to do, but often find it hard to actually get the traction to make it successful. And the, the concept is citizen development. And, you know, it gets thrown around and, oh, you can do this and that and the other. And really technology is only part of the problem. You're going to mention culture. You're going to mention a security access. You're going to mention, right. this is not my job. And why are right. you coming to me and asking me to maintain more applications and more platforms for more departments, you know? So I'm going to take a page out of a book from one of where I used to work is, is climb with care and confidence. And what we did Mark Tognetti works with me. And what, what we've done is we've gone around to those customers that have had successes. And then we said, what worked, what didn't. So there's organizational change management. And that's the big part because the culture of some places can be like, well, we don't work with them. Well, <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to at one point, where is that point and how does that work? You know, so yeah, how- I mean, what- one of the things that I've seen you know, is you, you point out, right, like that culture of internal communications, right? Like we don't work with these guys. We don't talk to these guys. You need a ticket for that, you know, and all that, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? I've always found those internal silos to be the biggest barrier set in front of doing something like this, mm-hmm. where because when you have something a citizen developer led, I mean, a citizen doesn't necessarily mean like someone out in the end user base, though it could. But it sometimes just means like someone at the help desk who has a little bit of technical experience, but not necessarily like sysadmin, ServiceNow developer experience. And they might be closer to the process on the ground, but they don't necessarily have the access or the respect internally to be given that responsibility to build something out like this. That's one of the big roadblocks that I've seen. Yeah. A lot of people aren't willing to give up the the keys to the castle and will beat the drum of separation of data and duties. And these are all well and good and proper. But the issue is, and I'm going to, I'm going to go back to this, like there's the definition of citizen development. And I said, you know, like client with care and confidence, and you bring up a, a good point is like someone on the help desk, if they have access to it and they've got flow designer, maybe they can do something. 
I consider citizen development to be part of a, a, a bigger umbrella, and I got this from Mark Tognetti, so, you know, all credit due to him, is uh, distributed development. Okay. And sometimes you've got pro resources that are assigned to different groups, and that's really your foothold, that's your fulcrum, that's where you say, how do we bridge these two people together is sometimes it is, oh, we don't have access, but Jane, <laughs> Jane's our technology liaison. And how can we connect Jane with James so that we can start passing stuff back and forth? How have you tackled that issue? Because that that one has always cost me, and I've experienced it in different ways, right? Not, not necessarily just in the citizen development part, but from your experience, how have you tackled that in the creation of like the citizen development programs internally? Because I've always found that when I'm on the outside looking in, trying to tackle internal communications is one of the things that I'm... I won't say least capable of doing, but one of the hardest things to do because you don't have that understanding of internal culture until you've been on a project long enough. And then by that point, you've probably killed a lot of cycles trying to get there. Well, from the culture side, I think we were actually talking about this. I don't know if it was in the green room or not, but the sort of limbic response is how do you get an emotional response to someone to get them over a logical thing? So, okay, well, you don't want to work with this group, but you have to. How can we make that experience the best that it can be? Instead of them calling you or you managing a ticket or something else like that, how do we make that work better for you? Sometimes it's something as simple as like a subflow. Now you don't even have to talk to them. You can right. see what's going on and now you have it digitized. And then you can automate from there and maybe you never even need to talk to them. Who knows? But that's design. And so... That's how you get that corporate marriage counseling. <laughs> how can we get right. these two people to sit down and talk? Could you tell us about a time where somebody succeeded at scale, though? Like not talking like individual use cases. How do we talk to them? But have you seen many clients that actually have a no-code, low-code citizen developer program? A few. I work with some of our defense contractors and our GSIs, most of them, actually. Some of the GSIs are highly siloed and some of them are not. And the defense contractors kind of the same way by nature of how their job needs to be. You know, I was talking about separation of data and duties, especially if you're working on compartmentalized or secret or something else like that. So that is a nuanced problem to solve because they're immediately more reticent to share and, and, and work together in certain environments. And both of those are 100,000 person organizations and they have thousands of these distributed and or citizen developers, and they have different nomenclature for them. So some of them are like shared IT resources. Some of them are like business process liaisons. Some of them are, I can't even remember some of it, but that's where it's successful is, is where you say, all right, what is the culture? And we know people have to work together. Who are they? How do they do it? Is that what you were asking? Yeah, I think so. It's just, while I have given people a citizen developer type access in the past, it was never something that I scaled up into. Hey, fill out this form and you can start building catalog items or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or something like yeah. that. And then I would anticipate from the architect's perspective, we have to have some kind of review because we don't want these things pushed just willy nilly. There's probably a lot of people who are trying to figure that out. They have an instinct that they know they can't just turn this on. So how do you get from, I don't have a citizen developer program to here's the steps I need to take? Well, whether they have one or not, they have one. The problem is, is that one of them is <laughs> well-known, discovered and managed and governed and audited and whatever. And if they don't think they have one, then they probably don't have a lot of rigor around those areas. 
So what I normally do is talk to the architects because they're going to be the ones that are going to say, we have two or three low code platforms. How do we choose what to build or what features and functionality to allow what people to have? And from a sort of how do I start there, there is a catalog item request or something like that to say like, hey, I want to do this. And then someone will say, okay, well, here's a knowledge article. And uh, you need to go spin up a PDI and do these labs. And then you need to affirm and attest that you are not going to do X, Y, and Z. And when you want to do something or you want to level up or you want to have new access, then we need to review that. And there's processes around all of that. But the scale comes from the automation thereof. I, I talked about it earlier. Are you just with this low code citizen program, just giving IT more work to do? And it's not necessarily that, and that's not the way to, to scale either. This wasn't on the list, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where do you draw the line between low code and everything above that? Uh, like, I... would you imagine a low coder using integration hub and like plugging in an integration to another system? Or do you think that needs a little bit more pro code approach? So that's a good question. I consider no code process automation designer and, and flow designer. Yes, you can do little scripting one-liners and whatever there, but that's the person's choice. I consider low code, I can do some one-liners and, and some short scripting and even maybe some simple integrations. So that'll be like your pro amateurs that happen to sit in a department. But yeah, I do consider pro coders. It's like, all right, well, I'm writing a bunch of business rules and script includes and, and all that stuff as well as Integration Hub. What I always wonder in these situations, too, is how do you scale the program itself up to a point where... So uh, here's my perspective, right? So typically, you might have, depending on the size of the organization, right, you're going to have a, you know, an instance, and you're going to have a team. That team's typically going to be small because IT cheap. Right. The business never wants to cut a check. Sometimes you're only going to have a service now all to one person. Sometimes you're going to get lucky and the business will recognize the value of service now a, a lot more. And you might have like an architect, you might have a product owner and you might even get lucky and have a developer or an admin. From the perspective of citizen developers, like a lot of companies have a huge citizen development ecosystem already that they fail to recognize. Everyone is building these apps inside of Microsoft Excel. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's kind of like the untapped ecosystem for, in my opinion, building that ServiceNow citizen development ecosystem. Have you ever seen a company like successfully navigate that gap from creating these applications and spreadsheets to natively changing the way folks think that we should create these applications in ServiceNow and then also having the ability, those quote unquote power users in the end user ecosystem to do that? There's a few ways that I've seen that been done. I'll give you an, an example. So there's a consumer goods company and they were doing stuff in like SAP and SQL and TIBCO Spotfire. These are the, the people that can write queries and do wizardry, quote unquote, in Excel and access and all of that. And the, the problem was that they did not have access to do all of the programmability in SQL that they needed. They didn't have the flexibility to do calculations and automation in Excel they needed. And then SAP was just a PhD and $100,000 away from being able to start. So when we came in, it was like, so here's your partner. Your partner's going to lay the groundwork for this app. And then once you have that, then you are the schmees. 
you've already got some technical capabilities. And so now you know how to parameterize your SQL queries. Now you know how to get an RPA to, to grab this thing out of TIBCO or have the, the partner build that API endpoint to generate the stuff from TIBCO and deliver it to you rather than you go and get it. And then, of course, there was the, hey, how do we, and it wasn't invoices, it was marketing discounts and stuff like that. How do we enter that into SAP for the payback to the, the, the convenience stores? So it's not necessarily that you're going to replace everything with us. It, it's that we're the, the medium and there's capabilities that allow you to, instead of do it in 12 different systems, 12 different languages, 12 different ways, you just say, oh, well, it just happens all the stars align. And now I can do this with less of a heavy handed approach from my pros. Yeah, that makes sense. I've always thought of ServiceNow uh, as the platform of platforms, right? So I won't steal any credit for the tagline from what, four <laughs> or five years ago. But <laughs> ever since it was announced, like it clicked, right? Like, yeah, this makes sense. Because one of the main things I've been doing with ServiceNow is doing integrations with other platforms and utilizing ServiceNow to be that front end of all of those other platforms, right? Then they're really just storing data. Sometimes they'll do specific kind of business logic that's already built into it. But most of it is pull data into ServiceNow and use the ServiceNow wide variety of, of, of tricks to do what you need to do, whether that's workflow or calculations or reporting or what have you. So I want to so shift I got, gears. Well, oh, I got go one more point on that for you. Okay. Yeah, this is, you know, and this is to the previous question too, is what do I consider low code? I think the nuance is what can you do with less code? Oh, okay. And so if you're working with your partners, then they can say like, hey, yeah, I can do this and I can just slap it out in a, in a script. And I've seen that a bunch of places. And oftentimes that's some technical debt. But if you take a moment to refactor that, then you can say, hey, here's a subflow or here's how you can use this or here's how I can reach out to these three other systems. And then now you can change how that works. So there's, yeah. there's differences there. And that's all I want to say. No, no. I think that's I think that's something great to explore there, too, because in situations where I'm working with a client, they'll often remind me, hey, don't forget that when you leave, we need to maintain this. And so that, I think that runs parallel to what you were saying there mm -hmm. is that sometimes just because I can knock this out in a script include that gets called from a business rule and with some kind of esoteric conditions on it. Right. And it'll work just fine. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the right way to do it for this particular project based on who's going to maintain it after I'm gone. And I see the same situation based on what you just said. Yep. There's one thing on your LinkedIn feed I definitely need to get to. In your most recent experiments, it talks about dealing with hyper automation, mm -hmm. which sounds awesome. But More automation. Yeah, hyper automation, <laughs> not just automation. buzzwords. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to make the assumption it's a buzzword, but it's very buzzy. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, what I want to do is, is hear when you guys talk about hyper automation on ServiceNow, like what is that and has anybody done it? In the same way that citizen development and distributed development is an organizational thing as well as a technological thing, I consider hyper automation to be the sort of process analog of that. And there's a reason why, you know, I spoke before about human-centered design, user experience, digitization, and automation. Because the ability for you to hyper-automate, and I'll get into what I consider that to be in a moment, is 
dependent on your ability to say, we can do this, but should we? And in what order? And what's easiest? And then how does that scale? So one of the, the biggest things that we do when we talk about hyper automation is, is we make sure that we let people know that hyper automation has a lot of components underneath it that allow you to get to that goal. So I consider hyper-automation to be the automation of automation, or at least, hey, you should automate here, or this process or automation is uh, suboptimal. So that's where the new features on workflow optimization come in, where it's telling you how long it's spending at each of the phases and such? Right. And if you look at our acquisitions, uh, you're also looking at like Gecko Brains and some others in our partnership with Solanus, and that's process mining. So you got process mining, you got process automation, you've got orchestration and, and, and bots. Those are in a orbit around each other as part of the things that support hyper automation. The thing about process mining is, is instead of saying, you know, this is what my process is, process mining says, this is what your process actually is. <laughs> uh, I looked at the logs and I saw what happened instead of you drawing it out. It, it reminds me of sometimes you'll build something and it'll work. And, and then it'll work until it stops working and you need to troubleshoot. And then you realize, huh, this isn't working the way I built it or the way I thought I built it anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of interesting to me. I mean, for any skeptics out there who think that sounds a little bit too like wave the magic wand and it discovers it for you. That is actually what... Remember, we had Jared Latham as a sponsor forever, like with DotWalk.io, which just yeah. got uh, acquired by ServiceNow, by the way. That's what his application did was don't define your use cases in ATF because that's the academic doctrinal view of how you intend this thing to work. Why don't we just discover the way things actually work? Mm -hmm. And I was super happy about that acquisition as well. Yes, me too. Yep. There's another avenue. Well, there's a few others, but people talk about prediction and ML and AI and similarity frameworks and all that other fun stuff. Oh yeah. Like on their own. Actually, let me, let me put this in context of story. So <laughs> when we talk about what we're doing with our customers around hyper automation, you can go and look at our SKUs. We don't offer that yet. And that's important to know because hyper-automation isn't just a piece of technology, it's an approach, which means that you have to get a bunch of stuff lined up first and sort of minimize a bunch of stuff. It's more deep than it is voluminous. If you think about how do we automate automation, we're not the only ones doing this. And in fact, there's a company I, I work with, they've got dozens of thousands of engineers, the creme de la creme of that industry. And these engineers can go off and do everything they want. They've done data science. They know how to do AI and ML. They implement it in real life. And so when ServiceNow comes along and says, ah, oh, we'll help you with this. And they're like, who are you? Why are you here? What's going on? I start to talk to them and just be like, listen, I know it. I'm not coming in saying you should use our AI and ML. You can, but what I would like to do first is just figure out what you're doing and why. And when you start to talk about them and what they're trying to do, it's the same journey that we have. How do you automate automation? When this company does it, they're like, oh, we build an AI model that talks to this fluids dynamic simulation thing and it does X, Y, and Z. Oh, okay. All right. Well, how does that tie over to your prediction model for forecasting parts to make sure that you have them in the right country at the right time, seven years from now, to make sure that this thing keeps working? And they're like, well, eventually we'll talk to that group. Oh, okay. How do you know when they change their models and you change your models and or 
the data sets that those models are built upon because those are assets now and ignoring audit because they they are audited is is you know what version of this did you use when well we built ours in sage and they built theirs in r and they built theirs in you know, just keep going down the list. And it's like, okay, so this story is going to sound pretty familiar because it's the disconnected, disparate, and different. What's the siloed approach to all these things? And uh, just one statistic, I think it was Forrester, that said like 78% of AI models never make it out of the lab, even though they could provide value. When we talk to them, we say like, how are you managing your assets? How are you making this available? How are you automating and deploying? How are you connecting these things? And they're like, oh, <laughs> so that's what we're talking to them about. And that's really what made them buy into us on the, the hyper automation story is, is that not that we do all of it and everything and right now, it's that they've now figured out there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't have to build if we go the service now route. You know what? Yeah, <laughs> that has always been my view of the platform since I first touched it, even before like we bought it when, when I was on the customer end. But when I first touched it and realized like everything as you know, I'm playing with it and everything, we ended up with a demo instance before we signed on as customers and blah, blah, blah. Right. And how much of the heavy lifting the platform does for you so that you can focus on the things that you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious you said the contrapositive of what i told them i was like yeah you can build all this stuff but why it's not right? valuable for your engineers to spend their time doing this mundane stuff in a discipline that they don't have a great grasp of if you want the best in change management you're talking to us and that's what it's about why build a notification engine service now already has that why build a workflow engine? ServiceNow already has that. Why should I build a platform full of APIs when, again, ServiceNow already has that? So it's all of those things that, you know, you put them all together. It's like, let me just focus on the stuff that we're doing well and let you guys do the stuff that you're already doing well. We'll marry the two together and boom, success, right? It's, it's scalability. Yeah. I mean... To the point is we had a GSI and this goes back to sort of like the low code side of it, but it's also now how that, that previous company I was talking about is doing this. GSI was like, well, there's been some changes in how people need to access files in, in SharePoint. We need to make sure it doesn't get external access and this and that and the right yeah. people see it. And, you know, there's also rotations. So consultants can't work on a company for so long or if there's conflicts of interest and dot, 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 right? Yeah. So they were like, how do we ensure that the right people have the right access to the right files that are user generated across our whole globe? Yeah, we've talked about that a couple of times, eh, Corey? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a way to help your citizen developers never have to manage that again. Because what they did was, is they, they took our SharePoint spoke and they copied it and they edited it and they added extra logging and checks and audit. And so now anyone who uses that integration hub spoke it's automatically automating some of their audit and governance, as well as, ooh, this looks weird. I want to have someone review this. So that's beautiful. That's scale right there. And right. I'm a mathematician. So when I look at stuff, I'm like, what's the frequency? What's the severity? What's the complexity? When you talk to architects in that way, it's like, hey, do you really enjoy managing all the various upgrades and connections and ETLs and all that between all of these systems? Or would you rather just focus on simplifying and getting work done? And we have a great story around that, but I'm not going to pontificate. 
<laughs> when you are in these situations, you're talking to folks, do you have a checklist or some kind of uh, Bible or something that you reference to get through these things or do you just play them by ear with your wealth of experience? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is, how do I say this? I don't like to use fear as a motivator, but... What I do like to do is say, like, I, I know what you're going through. I know what you're thinking about. And so I and my sales guy, Kelly, created a set of six questions that we ask people. And all we're trying to do at this point is to make sure that we can speak to the right people so that we can be in the rubric you know, it's like application lifecycle management, BCBD. How do we get in the conversation for someone to say, oh yeah, I know ServiceNow is available, but I don't want to use it. And here's the reason, because I want them to know when they should be using us. And I, I always try and do the fear and the negative, but I give them like six questions. And actually, it's funny, you guys brought this up. How much can be done in no to low code? Can it integrate with my COTS custom and collaboration platforms? How do I manage to control this platform at scale? Is my data safe? Does it meet regulatory compliance and audit standards? Does it scale for enterprise-wide use cases or consumption? Will my low-coders be able to take advantage of omni-channel AI, mobile, natural language interfaces? And we put that all in one, and you don't really have to integrate it together. And architects really appreciate that. And auditors really appreciate that because then they don't have to sit down with a programmer and find out. So explain to me how this is audit compliant again, because they can just get the log or they can use their own flow designer to do these things. So it's a wise approach to solving those scalability and, and complexity issues. All right. We are at time. So we'll give you the last word, Stephen. If there's one thing you want people to take away from this, what would it be? Hmm. The things I would say are the number one takeaways is start with design. The technology is probably there or it can quickly be accessible. But if you're not addressing how someone needs to work or work better or how your customers need to get X, Y, or Z, then you're just doing the same thing uh, a different way and expecting the same result. Sounds like our outcomes episode, eh, Corey? Just insert that right here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely does. Yeah, let me try and say that again. And I would say start with design because otherwise you're just throwing a bunch of technologies together. If you're not addressing outcomes or the experience, then you're just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I say that citizen development is one of my most common conversations. And I think it's because people don't know all the things that we can do and how simple and cohesive we make it and how safe and uniform it is. So once they can approach ServiceNow from a design perspective, then they're going to get more out of this. And I know that I'm not speaking alone in this because the former CIO, Andrew, something of, of Accenture said, we quit asking if ServiceNow could do it. We started asking what experience do we want to provide? And I think he's at Microsoft. He's like their CDO now. That would be my number one thing to take away from this. Wise words from Steven here, closing us out. CJ and the Duke is hosted by Robert the Duke Fedoric and Corey CJ Wesley. We are both freelance vendor agnostic ServiceNow experts who can help you in three different ways. If you want a true consigliere in your corner for your ServiceNow implementation, if you want to tell your customer story on CJ and the Duke, or if you want your brand in front of the largest independent ServiceNow podcast community, check the links below for how to contact us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.